I just realized it didn't seem like there was a safe space to have these conversations or to ask inverted commas a silly question. No questions silly. We don't get taught any of this at school. I studied for four years post-university to get this qualification. It's, it shouldn't be a given that you just know it. There is a quote by Oprah which goes something like, follow your passion, it will lead to your purpose. And my guest today is someone that that quote really, really describes. She followed her passion for food. She followed her passion and her love for languages. She followed her passion and her love for travel. And she's been able to create a lifestyle which combines both her passion and her purpose by creating not just one, but two businesses. And she lives a digital nomad lifestyle that so many people will be so (laughs) envious of. And it hasn't been easy. That journey has not been easy. And we talk about the ups and the downs she has had all the way through. But being able to just tap into who she is, what she's about, feed her curiosity and create what she would describe as a harmonious lifestyle is something that we can all learn from. A fire Titus, aka Fee, as friends call her, is who I have on my podcast today. Just take some time, relax, listen to this amazing conversation of someone who is an everyday leader. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with the founder of Limehut. She is the co-founder of Coco Financial. She, for her sins, is a former child accountant. See, I recognize it. So, <laughs> as one myself, you know, we, we walked a dark path. I've got Fia Titus, Fee, joining us just to have a brilliant conversation. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Yeah, for, for my sins, a former chartered accountant. <laughs> but <laughs> I like that we can both laugh about it together. No, I have to say, though, it was a really good way to sort of start my career. And there's lots of jokes online about how boring accountants are, but um, hopefully I buck the trend as, as being slightly more interesting than the sort of TV version of an accountant. <laughs> you are dispelling that trend and just breaking it down and showing that people should stop stereotyping what they think accountants look like, how they act, how they operate. So, and actually to that effect, I, I wanted to peel it back to a younger you. When you wanted to be a diplomat, well, why did you want to be a diplomat when you were younger? Good question. I mean, sometimes I ask myself why I'm not a diplomat now. <laughs> But I had a really keen interest in languages from a very young age. I was kind of obsessed with French from the age of four. Bit strange. So my parents were like, who's this weird kid who just keeps speaking French? Like, but they don't speak French. I think I just saw some cartoon show when I was younger. Books, films. Yeah, I think there was like some show. I think it was called Caillou or something like that. This is a little French boy. I just I just really got interested in, in in French particularly and then other languages. And then I started studying Latin from the age of eight. Again, very random. In doing so, sort of learn quite a bit about uh, Roman politics and just uh, how was this strange kid? I just, you know, I got my kicks from Roman politics and French language. 
and just kind of thought I'd, I'd go down that path. And <laughs> and it kind of informed the uh, choices I made for university. So I studied French, Latin and Dutch and was absolutely certain I was going to work in, you know, foreign policy or diplomacy, just sort of something that was sort of politically aligned where I'd get to use my languages all the time, but ended up at a, a university in central London, UCL, where I kind of got caught up in the rat race of everyone getting a, an internship in finance. And, <laughs> and that was the end of that, really. But I still get to use my languages all the time, which is great. So who knows? Could be another career in diplomacy later on. Very happy with how things I, I, I wouldn't put it past you. I, I wouldn't put it past you, to yes. Do you speak any other languages apart from those three? I can't really profess to speak Dutch. And the reason why is everybody in Holland speaks perfect English. So I tried my hardest, but anytime I tried to speak Dutch, they'd reply in English and it was just very hard to get to a sort of a a true fluent level. You know, everyone on their CV is like, I'm fluent in this. Like, I'm not even pretending in Dutch. Um, people in Holland speak perfect <laughs> English. But because of the background with Latin and it being the stem of many languages, I feel very comfortable and au fait in Spanish-speaking countries, Portuguese, Italian. Even if I can't necessarily reply to people, I pretty much get the gist of what's going on and can read in most of those languages to a, a decent degree. But the second someone has like an in-depth political conversation, that's when I sort of tap out and know <laughs> my place. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you have an interest in politics? I really do. I can't stop watching things like Question Time. I think... What's quite funny with the kind of shows I watch, there's just no in-between. It's either absolute trash TV like Love Island or it's Prime Minister's Question Time or <laughs> Thursday Night Question Time with David Dimbleby or Fiona Bruce. There's just no in-between. <laughs> I, I just find keeping up to date in current affairs important. I love a political debate and I've learned probably through sort of the fallout of Brexit and sort of being one of these metropolitan people in this bubble in London where I kind of didn't know anyone that was voting differently to me and woke up to a result that was different than anyone I'd known. I realised I was in an echo chamber and I had some unlearning myself to realise that over half the country didn't have the same view as me. I thought it was a given, very naively, confidently thought that, you know, the result was a given. And since then have learned that it's important to read different sources and understand where other people are coming from. And I don't use politics as a divisive thing in my life. I, I welcome people having different views and different values. I just want to make sure I'm having those conversations and learning from those people so that I'm never in an echo chamber again, because uh, that was a bit of a bubble that popped for me in 2016. How is that? unlearning and relearning process for you? Because I know that can that doesn't always come across easily. It came quite easily to me. I think I was just in such shock on that initial day that I realised I, I wasn't one of these people who was like, oh, the issue is with the other 50% of the country that voted this way. I just wanted to understand why. And I just thought, you know, having these different camps didn't make sense. It's, if, if you don't understand the why in anything, you don't know the how in the best way to sort of serve people, whether that's your clients, business, whatever. And so the day I realized I was living in an echo chamber was the day I realized I didn't want to be in one ever again. Not to say that coming outside of the echo chamber would change my core values and my views and what I believed, but I thought it was just really important to understand, yeah, how others think, how others behave, how others see the world, because I'm 
moving concurrently in the same world as them. So it's just important to do that unlearning. I'm just intrigued. Have you always had that curiosity? And is that part of things that have helped you to navigate the time when you were in the corporate world and navigate those environments that you were in as well? Or is that curiosity that you've learned and developed down the line? I think I've always been a curious cat. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been curious. I think I've also, I've often been in spaces where I'm minority, whether that's as a woman, as a black British person, a different socioeconomic bracket from quite a young age. You know, I got a scholarship to a really awesome Montessori private school in not quite the local area. It was a bit of a trek for my parents for me to get there. But so from quite a young age, age sort of seven or eight, I was learning very quickly that my world, as I saw it, was very different to these other people's world. And I was just curious about people. And what was really awesome was, you know, I made sort of lifelong friendships there, despite being different. And I think I've just always embraced difference. And that's just always sparked my curiosity and other people who are different. And yeah, I think I think it started as early as that. But I'm always curious, always wanting to know what's out there in the world. And maybe it's why I travel so much. Always sort of curious about how other people live. And you're traveling is something that you were able to do when you were a chartered accountant as well, wasn't you? You worked in was it DRC and Gabon and Tunisia. And you kind of like you're exploring some of the... This is on the continent in Africa. Oh, so you say beautiful places and I'm sure they're gorgeous. But when you are uh, sort of on a financial engagement in a windowless cabin in, a, in Brazzaville <laughs> or Mwanda, it's not, quite, it's not quite this glamorous, amazing thing. Yeah, because of my French background, I was very fortunate to work on some pretty cool engagements in West and Central Africa that were Francophone countries. And I got to speak what I like to call franglais, a mix of French and English. Obviously, English is quite a de facto language when it comes to the world of business. So I got to brush up on my my franglais out in that part of the world for, I think I did those engagements for three or four years. I wasn't out there permanently, but, you know, I'd, I'd go and do the engagements and come back in. Yeah, it was a pretty cool experience working out in the Congo and the DRC. career that you've had, what you're doing, traveling, coming back. How did um, Limehut start? So Limehut, the, yeah, the genesis of Limehut. I've always, always been a foodie. I remember with my uh, our, my family friends, the Tago family, when we'd go to each other's house for dinner, we'd always sort of cook dessert as kids and we'd write out menus for our parents as if they were in a five-star restaurant. Obviously it wasn't, we were, you know, seven years old, <laughs> kind of doing our take on apple crumble or something like that. But in my mind, it was this Michelin-starred restaurant and our parents had to know. So yeah, we'd, we'd kind of create menus and get really excited about cooking. And I just loved cooking and had such an affinity with food. And, you know, my mum's a great cook, but my aunt especially, or my dad's side of the family, she is just a sensational chef and food was just such a big part of family life growing up and it wasn't until I went to uni that I realized gosh no one can cook what what is this about like people were congratulating themselves for like frying an egg or like boiling plain pasta and it was at that point that I realized the sort of a skill I had with food and just my love of food was something I'd been taking for granted it wasn't sort of a given with 
other students and I've just always loved like hosting dinner parties and so there was always a foodie part of me in the back of my brain and then whilst I was at Deloitte that's where I uh, qualified as a chartered accountant I started hosting supper clubs just for fun I I would go to random coffee shops and say hey, you're closed on a Sunday. Can I take over your space and turn it into a restaurant, a pop-up restaurant for the day? Most said, no, go away. (laughs) But one or two said, yeah, sure, why not? And I started hosting supper clubs. Was this something you had seen before? You had seen supper clubs done or was this something that, new idea that just came to you like, I just want to host supper clubs after after what? Or the weekend? Yeah, so I'd been to a couple supper clubs before as an attendee. Normally they were hosted in someone's house but I kind of had the the business cog <laughs> in my brain going and thought I didn't want this in my house mainly because I live in a tiny flat in central London can't really host many people and so let's try a supper club more commercially in a space that will let me use it so started doing that and really Lime Hut was about bridging the gap between health and the heritage of my culture which is Caribbean, because something I've always found interesting is that Caribbean food is inherently healthy, but the cooking methods grandparents and parents have used over time is not the healthiest. So we'll take something that is naturally a superfood and super healthy and deep fry it or cover it in salt. And and then all of that nutritional value just dissipates. And whilst I was at Deloitte, I found it really hard to find like healthy lunches that were tasty. I was just like, I don't want to eat kale for the rest of my life. This is not what I want. And it's such a sedentary <laughs> job, finding it hard to get to the gym. Like, how can I have food that absolutely bangs that is healthy? And I just thought, let me sort of do a bit of a remix on the food I grew up with. So staying true to the authentic flavors, but giving it a healthier modern twist in terms of the cooking method. And that was the thinking behind Lime Hut. And that's what the supper club menus were all about. And I was just very surprised that the first one sold out and the second one sold out and the third one sold out. And it was at that point that I was like, ah, this hobby could have some legs. So I had a period of time where I was unfortunately quite unwell and I was off of work for a bit. And I think when you're sort of a bit bedridden and not able to do much and you've got a lot of time on your hands to think. I was thinking, I don't think I'm as integral (laughs) to a large company like Deloitte as I think I am. You know, when you're there, you think, oh my gosh, the the whole engagement's going to fall apart without me. And in that moment when you um, suddenly can't be there and you realise the team is getting on absolutely fine (laughs) in your absence because, you know, they hired tens of thousands of people. It made me realize I was a tiny, tiny cog in a wheel. And perhaps if I started my own thing, I lime her, I could be a, a bigger cog in that wheel and, and sort of wield more influence and have more results and perhaps be more fulfilled. And so when I came back, I had a very frank conversation with uh, one of the directors and the partners. And I said, I've got this idea. And they said, we know. We heard about the supper club. We've heard it's fantastic. We want to come to the next one. (laughs) I was really surprised to hear that. And they came along to the next one. And and then one of them sort of said to me afterwards, he was like, Fee, you need to go for this. Like, you you need to give it a really big shot. I think you've got something here. 
And so I was like, right, okay, I'll hand in my notice. <laughs> it was just like, no, no, calm down. Starting a business is very difficult and most businesses fail. How about you take a sabbatical, give it your best shot. And, you know, if it works out, congrats to you. If for some reason it doesn't, come back to us. You've got your job back, zero repercussions. And I just thought, wow, that was the biggest boat of confidence I needed to just sort of know I had the safety net and the support of these sort of big corporate guys. And that was my mind made up. So I, I took a sabbatical to give it my best shot. And here we are today with me not not back at Deloitte, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> yeah. When people say that, you never know the impact someone's words can have on you. I'm curious if you never had that backing or that support from that leader do you think you're still gone for it yes i do i just don't know that i would have gone for it as full pelt as i did it's a weird one i I think about in two ways sometimes i think the safety net helped me like do everything i needed to do in that year because i knew i had the safety net and other times i think i didn't go as bold as i could have done because I sort of had this thing in the back of my mind that was like, if this doesn't work out, I could go back. You know, I, I, I didn't necessarily play as big as I could have done. And so I got rid of the safety net. Uh, clearly, you know, not being back there, I, I very cheekily asked for an extension, actually, of my <laughs> mainly because <laughs> I, did. <laughs> I did. It got to the point where the business was sort of starting to gain momentum. But as anyone who started a business knows, you know, you don't sort of hit month one and it's just booming. And I think it was probably about month nine or 10 that I was getting into my groove. And I thought, oh, it's two months till I'm technically, you know, meant to make a decision about whether I'm going back. And I don't think I've given it a fair shot. So my mum always says, if you don't ask, you don't get. So I asked, I said, look, this is the truth. This is where I'm at. It's starting to gain momentum. Any chance I could have an extended sabbatical? And they said yes. And it was during that year that I realised I wasn't playing as big as I could have done because of the safety net. And that's why I ripped off the proverbial band-aid to take that safety net away. Yeah. What was that year like for you? Very tough (laughs) because I didn't have a safety net of any form. I think a lot of people starting businesses have some kind of financial backing from relatives or something like that. I I didn't have that. I mean, my family gives me a lot of support and I think emotional support is probably some of the most important support you can get. But, you know, I didn't have the bank of mum and dad waiting to help me out if things went wrong. I didn't have uh, sort of this city job anymore to fall back on. And it was pretty much go for it, sink or swim, really. And street food by nature, I should probably point out, you know, I was talking about the supper clubs. The supper clubs wasn't the main business. That was how I started. But the main business was doing street food. So I had a street food pop up in central London. I had a kitchen takeover in Peckham. But these sort of business models are very arduous in the British weather. They're very, uh, <laughs> they're very seasonal. It's very loss making in winter. It's very boom tastic in summer. But that makes it hard. You know, you're not, you don't have a steady monthly income. You've got loads of cash at one point in the year and absolutely none at another point in the year. And it's sort of adjusting to that. But what it did make me realize was I was comfortable with uncertainty in a way I hadn't been before. I was embracing change. I 
didn't mind the the stuff that felt really uncomfortable at the beginning suddenly felt second nature and second hand and I think that year was the biggest growth year for me because it was really incredibly tough year for various reasons I sort of suffered from sort of really stiff joints and arthralgia and so winter street food is just really tough and I have something to question can I keep doing street food which was hard but you know, through those kind of difficult periods, I was able to sort of pivot. Oh God, that word. I feel like that's that word. It's the word that so many people said in the pandemic, right? But this was pre-pandemic. This was uh, the year before, but just working. Way back. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I know. It's the rollback. Yeah, just really working out how to overcome adversity, but also realize that any time that there's a challenge or an obstacle or a difficulty is an opportunity, or if that's an opportunity for reset or an opportunity to look at doing something differently. There's so much opportunity and difficulty and hardship and it, it took a lot for me to, to get to this side of it where I feel like that. But yeah, that taking away that safety net was the making of me in terms of growth and rising to challenges, yeah. I think that's very important. I think a lot of times when people think about stepping outside their comfort zone and it's it's very very scary and you hear great amazing stories like you just shared right now was the business took off and it was great but it's also important to, to lean into like it was hard like it was it was tough and you had a number of challenges that you had to overcome but those challenges help you to be able to grow and really help to mold and shape you into and build a character which is also very very important and a lot of times it only happens when we let go of the safety blanket and we have that courage to to step into into the fullness of who we are. I love when you said earlier on that I knew I was holding back. You know, you know there's more to you, but yet you just kind of just pull back a little bit. And when you're in a situation where you have to give it all you got, it's amazing what happens, what you can create. One hundred percent. And I, I also think um someone who sort of in my early years at school kind of just sort of excelled with a lot of ease. And um, never really had a lot of difficulty, sort of academically speaking. And when I had all these challenges, I remember my parents saying, we're, we're really happy you've, you've had these challenges. And I was like, what? Why are you happy I'm having such a tough time? And then they made the point that they were just like, you've kind of just, you've not had challenges that have really challenged you. And so you don't know how to, we don't know how you would have necessarily reacted when life gets real. And you've had a really tough time for you know, the, the this last three to six months, you know, be that health, finance, just working out what the trajectory of your business looks like, personal things going on just all at the same time, kind of a when it rains, it pours kind of situation. And I understood what they meant, especially because there's a motivational speaker called Adam Grant. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he posts just really poignant thought pieces. And so the day after my parents had told me they were, they were glad I fell flat on my face, I read this uh, quote from Adam Grant that basically said, um, effortless excellence is a lousy friend and it's fickle. Whereas actually, if you sort of overcome things through difficulty, success is more rewarding, but more importantly, it's more repeatable because you've learned something from it or you glean something from it or you've got experience now. And it just, it all kind of clicked that I think having success that's repeatable, I think is quite important in, in this day and age. And and I think um, it spoke to me because I realized I'd perhaps had a bit of a 
effortless excellence in a, as a child in academia, but who needs to take their GCSEs more than once? No one, right? If you're building a business, you want to learn lessons so that you can keep growing and possibly do another business and start another one and have these kind of lessons that you can learn. And so I think repeatable uh, success is so much more important and you can't get that without learning through difficulty and hardship. 100% agree. And it's interesting that you you gravitate towards Adam Grant. He does a lot around, well, he's a, obviously an organization psychologist and some of his books that he talks about, he talks about curiosity and the power of resilience and curiosity. When I think about you and your story and how you lean into curiosity and resilience, there I was like, yep, yeah, I can see some, I can see a lot of synergies between, between how he approaches life and what he talks about and, <laughs> and how you approach life as well. I clearly need to read his books on curiosity then. Yeah, I did. I didn't uh, realize he had a, <laughs> that side and element to him, but that um, <laughs> it probably explains why I've got this affinity to his uh, quotes. Nice. Yeah, he's a, he's a really smart smart guy, like Wharton educated kind of guy. So that's why a lot of people, a lot of business actually leaders leading to his work. After you spending your time creating this business and going through the hardship and difficulty and stepping out of leaving your, your safety net behind you, why did you decide to go again and create Coco Financial? <laughs> Good question. Cause I'm crazy. No, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I'm going to get financial just <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, my parents think I'm absolutely nuts. They're just like, just get a stable job. <laughs> but um, uh, they're obviously from a, a different old school mindset. Yeah, no. So Coco Financial for me was just very clearly passion and purpose colliding. And it was actually born out of my time running Lime Hut. So essentially, while I was running Lime Hut, I did some pretty cool collaborations with a lot of female-led businesses, independent female-led businesses, female creatives. And I noticed that these women were so passionate about their businesses and great at what they did, you know, whether they sort of sold a service or a product, they were fantastic at that element of it. But there was just a recurring theme that anytime there was uh, a conversation around finance, tax, accounting, business strategy, there was a bit of a sort of hazy look that would sort of glaze over their eyes. And I say a lack of knowledge, but I think more often a lack of confidence when it just came to tackling these areas. And I mean, I get it. It's accounting and tax sounds quite dull. We don't get taught it at school. It just seems really scary. And there's a whole industry kind of propped up on you burying your head in the sand and somebody else with a suit and a briefcase just fixing it for you. But I couldn't help but notice my male peers and my male counterparts were, even if they had no idea what they were doing, they had the confidence to kind of tackle it in a more head-on way. And I just, it just doesn't sit well with me. And I got talking to more and more women about it. And I just realized it didn't seem like there was a safe space to have these conversations or to ask inverted commas, a silly question. No questions, silly. We don't get taught any of this at school. I studied for four years post-university to get this qualification. It's, it's, it shouldn't be a given that you just know it. And the HMRC website is um, horrendous to navigate. It's full of, <laughs> you know, just buzzwords and jargon. Like I get why people get overwhelmed by it. And so I realized we had a slightly different view than your average accountant in that we'd also run businesses. And so we had sort of this commercial element, but also the technical understanding and sort of together, it kind of, we complemented each other in that respect. 
And so we started off just hosting workshops and seminars and the entire premise was just to debunk and demystify this scary world of finance and accounting, to create a safe space for women and just break it down. We wanted to be relatable. We made sure there were lots of memes and gifs and just things that made these rather boring topics just really stand out. But also the people left really understanding it. And what was amazing was after our first workshop was I saw women leave the room physically standing taller, feeling more confident, their head held high. And it just, yeah, it was where passion met purpose. I just felt so warm that we'd added value in just that short session by simply stating facts that are already there on the internet and known, but just in a relatable way. It was, you know, we looked like them. We, we're not some random dude in a suit with a briefcase and uh, the old school view that people think of, uh, you know, an accountant in a cartoon, for example. We're having real conversations. We're talking about, we're talking to women that um, have young children under the age of three that are overwhelmed running their business. And it's this safe space for them to be them, but to understand this world that feels like it's not for them much better. So that was the whole reason we started Coco Financial. It has this community angle and we talk about our trilogy of C services and that first C is community and that's the whole reason we started and we partner with various charities and social enterprises to make sure we are getting this word out to as many maybe historically underrepresented people as possible, primarily women, often young people, people of colour. LGBTQ communities. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm really proud that we've created this community. And some people refer to us as their finance BFFs or their financial fairy godmothers. And it's, it's just really, really awesome that we do have a community of people that we are supporting. We're supporting propel their dreams and their businesses forward by sort of just like lifting up this cloak of there's a dark area that feels really grey and scary by making it non-scary because we're not very scary women, you know? <laughs> yeah, at the um, start, we talked about you and your dreams around being being a diplomat. And you said one day you might pursue that. And I listened to you describe this community that you've, you've created. I'm thinking, when I think about what a diplomat is, isn't someone that's like tactical and skillful and managing like delicate, kind of situations and handling people and bringing them together and that's kind of what you've that's what you've done with Coco I mean awesome I'm just gonna change my CV tonight and start with that <laughs> 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 <I>, that's really that's very kind words I, I think where I struggle now is because I've been um, self-employed for so long I do wonder if I could be fully, fully employed again, which, you know, I probably would have to be if I were a diplomat. But it's, yeah, I'm a, I'm a diplomat in another field, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you are. In your own field, in your own lane, doing what you love and what you enjoy and making a difference. And it's interesting how you merged your love, all the different things you've been able to do over the years, from feeding your curiosity and your love of food, creating a business, to your love of languages help you to go into different roles and travel and explore. And then you had business and finance combined together and you 
created a, a community and a new business as well on top of that. And you always like, I think so many times we go through so many experiences in life. We think, oh, that was just for that. That was a season. But you're actually showing that, no, you can combine different elements of who we are from when we are a child all the way to when we're adults and bring that wholeness and that unity together to actually create something as you get older. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I, do, I don't think it was inc- absolutely intentional that I was going to do Lime Hut and the Caribbean street food and then do, you know, sort of this business finance community that was Coco Financial. But the way they led on to each other was so natural. And the second it clicked in my mind, I was then very intentional about both. And it's, I feel really content. I mean, anyone who's self-employed knows (laughs) you work a lot, right? But I feel like I have autonomy. I work on what I care about. I mean, there's always, you know, bits of any job that who loves admin? No one, (laughs) you know, but it's really awesome that I think the curious, adventurous kid I was, who was always interested in other people and how they behave from a young age is still doing that in in my different spheres of work. And it's only when moments like this that I stop and talk to someone about what I'm really doing and sort of hearing your feedback and your comments, I realize, oh, I am doing that. It's nice to stop and realize that. What helped create the clip as you described it? What was it that made you think this is it? Like it, it all makes sense. It's it's flowing in. This is me, my flow state. Well, it definitely was not my bank account because that was telling me I was a lot poorer <laughs> when I had a stable <laughs> job. So I'm just going to get that one really clear because I think people think, oh, you're self-employed, you're rolling in it. No, it was not my bank account. My bank account was like, girl, what are you doing? I think it was... I think it was after I got over the initial sort of shock of what it meant to run a business. Cause I, at the start, I had sleepless nights. I'd be thinking about the tiniest little things that keep me up at night. But now if 10 million of those little things happened, I'd sleep like a baby because you learn quite quickly what to stress about and what not to. But I started sort of following the school thought of stoicism and just really not caring about the little things and sort of sort of wielding power in the things that you can control and really having a focus and a purpose. And I realized even if it was my tiny little street food stall or my first week in Soho, where I think I sold like 14 or 15 halloumi, jerk halloumi wraps on that first day, that just felt like the biggest win ever because it had a purpose. I was making Caribbean food healthier and more modern and to see people from around the world, including Caribbean people, come and eat the food and enjoy it and get excited by it. I, I realized in that moment that I'd created something that people would want. And the moment somebody came back as a repeat customer, that was the moment I realized I had a business. Because if you know, if you haven't got repeat customers, you haven't really got a business. You've got a hobby that kind of makes you money. So it was definitely that for Lime Hut. And then with Coco Financial, it was, I'm talking back to the the sort of anecdote I gave you earlier of seeing women literally leave the room walking taller. I could see the confidence emanating out of them. That feeling was just the best feeling ever because I know what it felt like to be overwhelmed. And there's aspects of running my business that I'm terrible at. I'm not good at the social media marketing side of it at all. 
absolutely need to outsource that to somebody who's better at it. And I think as women, often with sort of starting small micro businesses or lifestyle businesses, women don't ask for help and they think they have to be all things to all people and they have to be the head of HR and the head of finance and the marketing person, as well as the sales director, you know, absolutely every role under the sun. And it's about relinquishing that control where you can and getting a hold and better control of areas that you absolutely need to. And quite frankly, if you don't get a hold of the finances and your strategy, your business is just a bit of a hobby. And so helping to lower the barrier to understanding and increase confidence in women, that's just my bag. I just love supporting and uplifting women and long may it continue. Long may it continue indeed. So would you say you you find it easy to ask for help? This is an interesting one. More recently, yes, but I have been my own worst enemy in the past. I am... I never used to ask for help. How recent is recent? In the last year or two. (laughs) Like quite recent. So I, yeah, I was that person that I just described. I thought I had to do absolutely everything. I would never ask anyone to sort of help me ever. And it's weird because I always help other people, but I never thought anyone would want to help me or, or should help me. I thought, this is my business and no one else's. No one told me to quit my job. I should do this. And there's definitely an element of control as well. Like if if somebody else did it um, and I wasn't there, would it be to the standard I, I want and need? Because when you first start a business, you're, it's your baby and any tiny thing has the biggest impact on, on the trajectory of your business in, in those early days. So I was just a bit of a control freak on, on that side of things. But I... I went to an event where I was actually catering and they had a tarot card reader and I'm really, I'm just a very pragmatic person. I'm always like, oh, it's a load of rubbish. I'd never believe any of this stuff. And the lady who was a tarot card reader asked me to sit down and I was just like, I'm good, thank you. I just thought I had better things to do. And um, I got chatting to her later and she was just a very interesting lady. And she said, look, this isn't a tarot card where I, you know, sort of read your mind and tell you who you're going to marry and where you're going to live in a few years' time. It just gives you some really poignant advice in one card. So I humoured her. I got the one card and the card just said, it's okay to ask for help from others. (laughs) I felt instantly attacked (laughs) because it was so spot on for who I was as a person and a I took a photo of it and I sent it to my parents um, and my friends and they were all just laughing because they were like, you never ask for help. And it'd been a bit of a running theme because I would just get burnt out at the end of every year. I would, you know, I was just, the hours I'd be working, the sort of the physical nature of street food, I'd, I'd just burn out every year. And it took for that for me to sort of realize that, oh gosh, I can't keep burning out and I can't keep affecting my health. And so I'd say in the last year or so, I've got very good at asking for help. And what's funny is it's just really not a big deal, is it? Asking for help is, you know, I'm not asking for the world when I'm asking for help. I'm just sometimes asking, hey, is anyone able to help me carry this heavy box because I can't right now? Or, hey, anybody know anyone who's good at X, Y, Z? And just getting someone to connect you um, and just understanding where 
your weak spots are, where your limits are, because burnout is not cool. And um, I was sort of a professional burnouter <laughs> for quite a few years until I started asking for help. And the second I started asking for help, life got easy. So, yeah. <laughs> It's one of the easiest things to do in a sense as it helps you to move to achieve certain things, but it's also one of the hardest things to do, especially when you're very independent person who is so used to like just taking charge and running with things and making things happen for yourself. So hey, I'm I'm with you, trust me. It's amazing to see you go on that journey and recognize and get to that point where now I'm asking for help. Now I'm leaning more more to people and I'm enjoying the support that it gives me because I don't want to be a, a regular burnout anymore, <laughs> year in, year out. You want to actually want to enjoy what you're doing rather than just get to the point of like, oh, I need to crash and then you go again, which is a really bad cycle to get into. Terrible oh, cycle. Progress. We're always, we're always learning new things about ourselves. Definitely. I, I just found it quite uh, funny that it was just a random lady who'd never met me before giving me a card. <laughs> That <laughs> was the, the catalyst for me to sort of have a bit of self-reflection. You live a life that a lot of people will be very envious of in terms of travel. So you have a digital nomad lifestyle where it enables you through to travel to different countries, experience those amazing countries, not in a cabin this time, but actually experience <laughs> those countries properly, but still have a growing and thriving business. How did you get into, I want to say that mindset of, you know what, I just want to see the world. I want to experience new places and spaces and still do what I'm doing. Um, I've always been a bit of a, an explorer, Dora the Explorer, as some of my friends used to call me. Um, <laughs> I'm always on a bit of a Dora adventure. So I started traveling. I had a, a break between sixth form and university. And I worked for most of that, but I, I sort of started, dipped my toe into traveling. Then I sort of did an interrailing around Europe. When I finished university, I went backpacking around South America completely by myself for three months. Again, my parents thought I was absolutely bonkers. And my poor mum, I don't think she slept for three months whilst I was away. <laughs> my dad called me and was like, you need to get back to England. Your mum is just going out of her mind. She thinks you're bonkers and just get back to safety. But um, I was absolutely safe and fine. I went from Argentina up through, where did I go through? Tried to go through Chile, but got snowed out the border. Went to Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia. Just had the best time of my life. And it was just the sights that I saw, nature just doing her thing. It was just amazing. And just meeting people and Realizing how insignificant our tiny little lives are when you sort of put it into a bigger scale. And so I've always been a traveler, always wanted to go to different parts of the world. And I don't really spend my money on things. I kind of spend them on experiences and I've always been like that. And so anytime I've had disposable income, it has often been to treat myself to go somewhere else in the world. And so I guess it was in late 2019, early 2020 especially pre-pandemic, when I started working remotely. And it was in that time that I realised, oh, it doesn't matter that I'm not physically in London or in the UK. I'm still able to, you know, jump on calls and 
meet the requirements that my that my clients need and my output wasn't affected and they didn't even know I wasn't in London to be honest and that was when I realized I want to do this as often as possible I think you can't beat in-person interactions and so I don't see me being away 365 days a year but the ability to maybe take a well before you just take like a little weekend holiday somewhere if I can now extend that and just work full-time from somewhere you almost get a better sense of the place, you know, because you, you're you not just up the tourist trail, you're actually living there like a local for a month, perhaps at a time. And it's something that keeps the personal side of me like on, on my toes and interested and engaged. And it helps scratch that curiosity itch, I suppose, if I keep going to new places, you know, as you will know creative accounting is illegal. So I just find sort of travel and food and these side of things is where I get to express my creativity or or at least that side of my brain, even if it's not inherently creative what I'm doing. And that helps sort of satisfy the, the curious cat in me if I could do that. But I have to say this year, you know, I am going off and doing a, a few more places of working remotely, but I'm starting to have words with myself. So I can't ignore anymore the environmental impacts of traveling in the way that I do. And I've made certain lifestyle changes to be more sustainable and more environmental. And I think the second I get on an aeroplane, even if it's a short journey, it pretty much undoes any of that work I've done. So I'm now having an inherent battle with myself about the uh, what's the right thing to do when it comes to sort of scratching my travel itch versus um, looking after planet Earth. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> just speaking out loud now, having a battle with myself. It's <laughs> a really big battle that I do not envy you. That's all I got to say on that one. <laughs> <laughs> In the trips that you've had and the amazing places you've been to, what has been some lessons or experiences that you've had that have really helped you and helped to shape and define who you are now? I don't know that I've had one of those sort of travels where, you know, we hear about people, they just like find themselves in Thailand, whatever that means. But I've definitely, I guess I've had different experiences in travel, right? So if I've traveled for business purposes, for example, like when I worked out in Brazzaville in the Republic of the Congo, that for me was a really awesome experience. That was the first time I worked in a corporate environment where despite being a foreigner who didn't speak the language as my mother tongue, I was working as an ethnic majority, which might sound like a weird thing to say, but I'd never really thought about it before. I've always been an ethnic minority in the workplace. And so to suddenly be in a corporate environment where I was an ethnic majority just did something for my soul. I just felt so much lighter every single day in a way I didn't expect to. I didn't realize it would have that much of an effect on me, but to know that my hair wasn't a source of wonder <laughs> the way it was in the London office, just small little cultural interactions that were mad to me that I felt at home somewhere <laughs> that clearly wasn't my home. That was a really invaluable experience for me and probably was one of the reasons I loved being out there. It That was wonderful. I, I suggest any ethnic minority person to have that experience. And it's not to say that I was having a bad experience in London. I just had a lighter experience there, which was truly wonderful. You're home. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> what it is, it's just that, it's just that simple. You're, you're, you're home among your people where you don't have to explain certain things or worry about certain things or 
where you look around you and it's just like, wow. And I think it's actually interesting when we go from a Western world back home to Africa, it takes us a while to get used to it. Oh, yeah. They just get on with life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, wow, <laughs> this is just... <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And then uh, I'm trying to think of a something that was sort of pivotal from a non-working like I, I just I don't know I think South America for sure just sort of traveling completely solo um, at quite a young age actually was my first step into just being okay and cool with the unknown which has probably helped me for business because um I booked my flight from London to Argentina and three months later I had a flight booked from Colombia back to London and that was all that was booked and so I freestyled the entire trip. It was just as long as I get to Colombia by, by that date of my flight, I'm cool. And that was really an awesome experience and the complete opposite of my first time traveling. I mentioned I went interrailing around Europe where I planned that entire trip to a T to the point that there was no enjoyment. <laughs> We'd get a train and I'd booked a very specific train at a specific hour on a specific date. And then we'd meet people and they'd say like, hey, you come to this jazz festival or this reggae festival that's tomorrow. And we'd be like, oh, no, because we've already booked <laughs> train. And at that time, I'm, you know, I'm a young student. You haven't got the disposable income to book the flexi ticket. You've, you're on quite a strict budget. And that kept happening. And that trip, you know, I was away for like five or six weeks. And whether we were in France or Amsterdam or Spain, like it just kept happening. I learned that I'd overplanned to the detriment of enjoyment. The big trip I did after uni, I did the complete opposite and just entirely freestyled it. And it was the best thing ever because I met amazing people. I got to see and do and experience things that I wouldn't have done if I didn't just immerse myself a bit more and talk to people. And so that South America trip where I totally freestyled it was definitely pivotal. For me, it, it sort of took the old control freak of me that I, I mentioned and sort of smashed her to smithereens. And I just became totally okay with going with the flow and yeah, just having fun with uncertainty. Like it was the best trip ever. I highly recommend doing it in some way, even if you can't do it for that length of time, just going somewhere and just seeing what happens. I love how the trips smashed and broke certain pits and elements inside of you where you're like those need to go to help me to level up and as that's happening there's a very courageous like i'm just gonna go for this i'm gonna do this i'm just gonna travel and see what happened i'm curious have you always been that courageous because the reason i ask that is if your mom is back at home scared out of her mind <laughs> want you what's happening to her door want you around the world by herself Honestly. and you're there just Living your best life, doing your thing. So have you always had this courageous streak? Honestly, my like, mum and dad. going to go for this guy. Honestly, my parents, they can't stand me. They're like, oh, she's off again. <laughs> We're so different. It's such a... They cannot stand me. I am. Um, we're really close. We're really close family. But yeah, I have always just been very different. I've always just been this adventurer. It's funny because a lot of people use the word courageous and brave. And I just... I don't feel courageous and brave for doing it. It just feels so normal and natural. Like, And then people say the same about starting a business, that it's really courageous. And I just wonder if I'm a bit crazy, maybe. 
<laughs> Maybe that's the answer. Because I, d- I don't find these things... Um, uh, I don't find these things scary. I don't find it courageous. And um, and I'm just wondering if that just sort of comes back to sort of that, that school I told you about that I went to where I was quite different and I met these people that were from different socioeconomic backgrounds to me. And this particular school, we were always, we were hardly ever in a school classroom. We were always up some random field in Wales looking at some castle or we were on a school trip to... France or Ireland, we, we were just always exploring. And so I think I, I don't find it a brave thing, perhaps because I've always been exploring since I was an infant. But I appreciate that, you know, going somewhere solo, people maybe, I, I get when people say that's brave in the sense of like, what if you don't meet people you like? Or what if you're alone the entire time? I'm just naturally quite, I, I just flock to people. I do. I am. Um, and I've got my wits about me. I'm not an idiot. I know stranger danger <laughs> and all that stuff. I know not to sort of walk around in foreign cities and dark alleys with my smartphone just out like a beacon to be taken advantage of. Yeah, exactly. I'm a smart girl. I've got my wits about me. And I just love exploring. And I, I just don't think it's that courageous going on holiday. <laughs> That's how I think about it anyway. I think that's one of the things around. There are things that we do which for us it's just like eh, this is what i do but other people looking looking in the on the outside in is like you start your own business and doing that starting two businesses and doing that it's like a lot of people want to do that yet they don't have the the bravery and the courage to, to to take a step out of their comfort zone even you deciding to cut your safety blanket again that or decided to go around traveling around the world the way that you did so it's just like well this is how i grew up this is how i see the world but to other people it's the things that they want to do, what they see you doing, and therefore it's there's an element of bravery around them. And that's why it's the everyday thing for you. And that's why it's great to hear your story and it's great to hear you unpacking certain things and you going through that journey for yourself as well. I shouldn't have said that in such a flippant way either. Like I do get, you know, starting your business is not for the faint-hearted at all. And I would be lying if I said, you know, it's roses and it's perfect. Like there are days where I wake up and I think, what? on earth am I doing? And I just wish more entrepreneurs were honest about that. I'm so fed up of um, going to these panel talks where they're just like, oh, this is how I made my first million. And no one talks about the grit and the difficulties beforehand and the days where you sometimes do feel like Mm -hmm. giving up. But for me, I think it's not about the, the money. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't turning part of it. Obviously, I'm not doing this just for fun. My income is not necessarily the same as it might have been if I'd have stayed um, in my super safe, stable job. But what I do have and what's invaluable for me is I've got autonomy on my time and where I work. And I, I ha- autonomy is the word for me. I have autonomy in nearly every sphere of my life. And I feel like I have that for me is more important than the final paycheck at the end of the day. Because time is money anyway, if you think about it. So <laughs> yeah, for, for me, that's why I do what I do. And that might be a privileged position to be in to, to say that. But it's not because I've got, you know, millions and millions in the bank or this lovely, amazing home. Like I feel like I'm just prepared to go against the grain of what society says we're meant to do. You know, like get this good job, get this home, lay roots here. I'm happy for those things to come at the time that they, whenever they do come to me. But I'm not prepared to sort of renege on the autonomy I have in my life and being able to set 
that time aside for me to to have my passion, meet my purpose in all veins of my life. Jeez, them bars, them bars there, huh? Absolutely love That's a life that is lived. You're not existing, you're living. And you're not prepared to, to just sit back and relax and have this, whatever society deems is the right way of doing things. You're doing things on your own terms, living life on the way that you define it. And for me, that absolute freedom to, to do that is amazing. Because like you said, it's something that you've intentionally created for yourself. And that intentionality is is key and critical. And we're talking offline and we've talked a number of times. It was like, your story for you is just like, yeah, this is what I did. But actually, when you listen to you play it back, you're like, no, what you've done is remarkable. And people need to hear more. And I'm sure it's going to encourage a lot more people. Just before we wrap up, I guess my, my last question to you is, how do you define leadership? Oh, that is a, a bold question, uh, but a very good one. I think leadership is embodying values. And so maybe some of our politicians could listen to this as well. But if you care about something, <laughs> <and that's, laughs> if you care about something and that's integral to your business, I'm going to, and I'm going to use this example for Coco Financial. It's important to us that we lower the barriers for our community and make it a safe space. And therefore our values are that we don't use, we don't use jargon. We don't use buzzwords. We don't say things that make people glaze over. And so if that's our entire core value for that community, I can't then sit there in a one-to-one mental session with someone and just spill off all of these words that I know mean nothing to them. And so it's about embodying your values. And when I say that, it sounds quite sort of abstract. But what I mean by that, I think more than values, it's about virtues. I think values are what you believe, but virtues are what you do. And so for me, leadership is having virtues that match your values or else you're not a leader. It's I, I just think everyone talks about values a lot. Everyone talks about values a lot. And I think it means nothing if your virtues don't align. I guess that's where the authenticity kind of comes from as well then, isn't it? So it's not what you're saying, what you're doing, how you're living. You're living in, it's not in that alignment. So there is no, there's nothing that anyone can say because you're actually practicing what you preach and you're living it out in the way that you live your lifestyle. And like you said, that's one of the values that you have from corporate financial people can see in the way that you approach your business, the way that you approach your life and we talked about the intentionality. It's it's all there for you to see in plain. So people naturally resonate and gravitate towards you because they can see everything you're saying is, is real and it's authentic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I hope so anyway. <laughs> uh, it's definitely there. And um, uh, it's been, I just want to say thank you. Like, I really, really, really love this conversation and so much, so much learning and encouragement as well just listen to you talk and you share and you go through your journey. It's amazing how things come together and how things that we have from when we're younger can shape us and help us to grow and lead us into new paths and new avenues. And like you say, it wasn't intentional, but looking back and you start connecting those dots, they, they all add up. 
And for me, they add up to someone who's uh, who's courageous, likes to feed the curiosity, who is intentional and value-driven, and someone who I define as a great role model and a great leader that other people can actually learn from. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Very kind words. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership, and we'll see you next week.